So Bob emails, let's read and answer. What do you say? I think you should have a Donnie Osmond poster in this room. Why? <laughs> I don't know. Just, just get something on the wall. Uh, let's read some emails. Patron Chris says, I'm an admin on the Facebook fan group. Uh, just chiming in here. Thank you so much, Patron Chris, for being an admin on the Facebook fan group. Going on with the email. I'm currently studying a diploma in relational counseling here in the UK, and I try to... what. Just chiming in here, what do you think about the change that we're trying to make in our field from marriage and family therapy as a name to relational therapy? First I've heard of it. Yeah, it's been it's been in the works for a long time because it's more descriptive. Yeah. And, you know, marriage and family therapy has problems because it excludes yeah. non-married people. Right, right. Couple, couples. And we concern ourselves with relationships generally, not, yeah. not with people who are in a formal legal family or marriage together. Right. Uh, and it in you can come to a relational therapist as an individual and talk about your relationships. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, the, I, I don't, I'm not holding my breath that we're going to change any, anytime soon because we still call ourselves marriage and family therapy. Our license is still marriage and family therapy. Our degree is still marriage and family therapy. Our professional organization is still American Association of Marriage and Family Therapy. It is, uh, you know, we've been trying to change it to couple and family therapy for 40, 30, 40 years, particularly back in the day to acknowledge gay couples that mm -hmm. couldn't get married according to the law. You so, think they not have this kind of resistance? You know, in academia, which is what this is, essentially, because you mm -hmm. have to appeal mainly to academia, and then they're the people who go to the state and change all these things, you know. Right. It is such a snail's pace. Uh, just as an example, I uh, people would um, quit sometimes, right? Like, you'd have a dean that would quit. And we would go on a search to find someone, and we would find someone, and they would be the interim dean for example for three and a half years wow so at a university yeah you can have a job that's considered temporary and it's literally it's literally in the title you are interim dean and it's for th and it's not an, an an anomaly that it's three and a half years it's like totally like well we just quickly found someone for this job and so, so it's on the agenda that within five years we'll find someone that's more permanent. You know, it's it's that that kind of that, mentality in universities. Wow. It's just, everything is just like considered. Well, we'll tackle it some other time, and we come from a long line of history, right? It's not like Silicon Valley where someone just says, "I'm going to create an app and disrupt," blah blah blah. <laughs> you know yeah. it. It, everyone has to agree. There have to be meetings and discussions and, you know, quorums and wow. articles and research. You know, it's, it just takes forever. Anyway, so I'm currently studying a diploma in relational counseling here in the UK, and I try to embody what you espouse. I had a bit of a, a question based on a question to another pod called the Jordan Harbinger Show. Someone wrote to them as a mental health practitioner trying to date in a rural area. She was worried that she could be seen by her clients as a bisexual person. It could cause a rupture with a client as people might have different viewpoints on sexuality. This doesn't appear to have a guideline from the authorities, at least in the U.S. or the U.K. I believe that 
therapists have a right to live their own lives, but what is your feeling about this level of public discourse or public disclosure, especially for those in a small area where the likelihood of being seen is much higher? Bob, what do you think? There's no getting out of it. You're going to be seen. My, my old supervisor, David Taylor, used to live on Bainbridge Island. It's an island population, about 10,000 people. And it's an island. So, you know, it's insular. And uh, he'd say, I hated it. I'd be out in the front yard mowing my lawn with my shirt off and my clients would walk by. Or I'd go down to the grocery store and I'd bump into my client's, you know, spouse or something. And, you know, it's just just how it is. This is no getting out of it. So... I hope that the person will just go ahead and live their life. And yeah, they might run into homophobia and that sucks. And right. it would be a tragedy to not live your life. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Therapists are allowed to live their lives. Client harm should be considered, but this is far below, you know, like I'm trying to think of a situation where if you're in a rural area, you should think about your clients like i'm thinking if well but even a political point of view you should be allowed to protest you should be allowed to vote you should be allowed to you know put a sign on your front lawn and talk about you know that's the american right you have the right to participate as a voter i'm just trying to think of anything that would i that i would consider to be crossing a line of risking too much client harm for your own autonomy, I suppose. Can you think of anything? I, I can't really think of anything. Because to, to me, what often gets talked about is, well, you can't get super drunk at the bar. And I'm right. like, well, why not? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's not necessarily a healthy thing for you to do. But because I and I remember hearing that in graduate school, they were talking about how they gave a vignette and they said, so someone got really drunk, a therapist, and... Um, was visibly intoxicated at the bar or something. It, is that ethical or unethical? And I'm like, uh, it's not unethical because they're off the clock. <laughs> and if a client happens to see them, uh, I suppose that that's a bummer. I, I think the vignette wasn't even that severe. It was something like just drinking in public or something. And And people, the consensus was... It was unethical in the class, of course, but of course, you know, classes, as I will sometimes say, I've learned over time that I'm just going to say anecdotally, at least half of what you learn in ethics class is not right. <laughs> That's depressing. Because anyone can be an ethics teacher, you know, yeah. like you take it from me, like in as a oh, program director. Right. right. Ethics classes aren't usually classes that people are dying to teach, and so you're usually looking. You're usually scraping the bottom of the of the bucket mm. for anyone to teach those classes. Not always, of course, but sometimes. Mm. And usually, they're just from your regular professor pool. Yeah. Sandra Lippincott, that was ours. But to become an ethics expert, to know things about ethics in our field and legality in our field. It is a very specialized set of experiences, yeah. meaning you have to be an, uh, an expert witness in court. Most ethics teachers do not go to court yeah. because they're a therapist and they teach, you know, it's just one of the classes that they teach. Right. They're rarely called into court because that's when you start to really experience, oh, that's how ethics are adjudicated. Mm -hmm. Not only court, but, you know, state boards. State, right. 
And the people that do know this stuff, of course, are lawyers who specialize right. in in these kinds of proceedings. And when I talk to them, they tell me very different things than ethics teachers will tell me. Wow. Yeah. And so, uh, anyway, so clients should be able to date. They should be able to go to on Tinder. Or, sorry, therapists and clients, <laughs> but therapists we're talking about. Should be able to date. They should be able to go on Tinder. They should be able to get tipsy on date night. They should be able to dress how they want, vote how they want, you know, as long as it's legal. Protest and march, join a sex club, wear a bikini at the beach. You know, these are things that I know clinicians, you know, I'm using these examples because I actually know therapists that will do this. And Seattle's not that small, big, you know, you can run into people pretty easily in this town. And if a client is affected, you know, then you discuss it in session. If if you run into a, a client or you tell clients, look, if you ever run into me in public, if if you're, say, on Tinder or something and as a therapist and you, you know some of your clients might be on Tinder, because the way that, you know, swiping right and left works is you'll go through dozens of faces in uh, in one day and could easily come across someone that you know. Yeah. And... uh so you might not necessarily say I'm on Tinder, but you could say to a client, uh, you might run into me in public or online. And if you do, please just let's just talk about it. Don't yeah. don't feel like yeah. you've invaded in my space or something, you know, but but I just want to make sure that our relationship is good and that your treatment isn't and, you know, hindered in any way. Therapy can be enhanced by such a contact. Right. Not I don't by contact I mean a therapeutic contact in the middle of a session when you're talking about yeah I saw you on Tinder therapy can be enhanced by having that kind of that kind of intimacy that kind of um, boy I'm using all the words that sound provocative that kind of connection in therapy can be helpful. It's unfortunate that the word intimacy now is a word for sex, sex yeah. because that wasn't the case when we were growing up. No, intimacy was closeness emotionally. Yeah, and then it became a euphemism for sex right. that people would use because they were trying to avoid saying sex. sex. And right. now, and now intimacy is just, it <laughs> just means it's sort of like the word moist is now considered gross. Did you know that? I, I've heard something about that. People don't like that word or something. Yeah. I, I don't get it. Really. Yeah. I think for our generation, it's like, why not? Because we heard the word moist being used in, in, non-sexual yeah, my basement yeah <laughs> which was or, damp or this fudge <laughs> right. this cake is moist right right moist cake yeah, yeah sure or I love this, moist cake. this steak is moist and juicy you know yeah, yeah and but i feel like at some point it started being used exclusively in sex or or in bodily fluids of some kind maybe you're sweaty and moist or something and then eventually it just became established that the word moist is a disgusting word and should never be used. And it just, it's the one thing that I'll tell you that I feel like I will eventually become an old man shaking fist at a cloud because of these kinds of things. (laughs) (laughs) The other hill I like to die on is short shorts. I'll talk about that sometimes about how, like right now, I'm wearing short shorts. You can see them, right? You can see my oh yeah, yeah. You can see my thighs and whatnot. Sure. And the shorts I'm wearing right now are actually long compared to the shorts from the '70s. Oh, sure. When I wore a lot of shorts, watch any NBA basketball, yeah. right? Yeah. And that wasn't to be sexy. That was just 
it, it, and to me, it was rational. It's because if you're going to wear shorts, you want to be unencumbered. Uh-huh. You know, you don't want things to get in the way. There's a reason you're not wearing pants. Right. And to me, shorts, running shorts, workout shorts, yeah. hangout shorts are supposed to... Anyway, um, getting back to your email. Also, you know, if you are bisexual and your client is biphobic, then and that ruins or threatens the treatment somehow, then screw your client, honestly. (laughs) Just because your client has this biphobic, bigoted point of view and and that somehow trips them up in terms of their treatment, then, you know, honestly, they can go to hell. I'm so tired. It's 2021, people. Like, get over it. Grow up. There are bisexual people in the world. There are gay people in the world. There are trans people in the world. Everything's fine. And let it go. And so if you are bisexual and you're in a small community that there's a lot of biphobia in the community, then, you know, I I just say, you know, live your life. Having said that, it you know, for some people, they're concerned about building their practice. And are worried that if they live how they want to live, they're not going to get any, no one will want to go to them because, because of one identity or another. And so, you know, maybe you have to make some, some tough choices around that. You know, um, it does seem to me two things occur. One is if I have a biphobic, if I'm bisexual and I have a biphobic client and they're willing to work with it, like their own biphobia, that's a real potential. I don't know that it's always the case. I probably rarely are people, you know, but occasionally there's probably going to be people. I don't think we should vilify people that are biphobic or homophobic. I I think if, if it is unwholesome to be around them because it um, impacts our own welfare and well-being, then yeah, so be it. But if I have a client that's biphobic, that's not a reason to eliminate them from treatment. And if I'm having a counter-transference response to that, it's worthy of supervision and the potential and maybe maybe nine times out of ten that that's just going to go nowhere but maybe there's an opportunity for at least one person maybe um to grow and if i can i could be a facilitator of that if i'm the bisexual therapist in the small town absolutely the other thought i had was a true story about a therapist i know who does not live in the u.s she's from another country who was dating somebody who was a little bit younger than her, about six, seven years younger than her, who had dated one of her clients who was twice as younger. So roughly the ages were my friend was 28, her boyfriend was 21, and the girl he was dating was 14. Uh, so who the was girl the girl he had dated? Oh, oh, and my my friend was the young girl's therapist. Right. So she was involved with this guy who had dated right. her client. Right. So she's da- so she's 28. She has a 14-year-old client who has an ex or a current partner who the therapist used to date. Uh, actually, the therapist was dating the guy cause he, after he had had a relationship with the young youngster. Uh, well, if that's true, I mean, that's, a, that's child abuse. It is. Yeah. She ended that relationship, um, and it was tricky because she couldn't talk to her client about it. Oh, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what she did about the legal thing, about the reporting. 
I'm not sure. Well, it's the police in our neck of the woods. Yeah. So anyways, um, there are some circumstances under which, you know, it's going to have an impact on your life and you maybe make some choices about like, that would be a really very rare one. Um, totally colored a view of the man. (laughs) She didn't know that he had been, how'd she find out? Did the client say? I think the client talked about. Oh my God! Yeah, can, you can you imagine you're dating someone? Yeah, and your client, who's 14, right, says someone abused me. Yeah, and he da da da, and you're like, wait, is that the dude I'm dating? Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. And she couldn't tell him because it would have been a violation of her client's privacy. Right. So that she ended that relationship without a word. Yeah. Wow. And I, as I recall, it was painful for her to do that because she liked the guy. You and will. it also, it also, you know, flipped a switch inside her about, you know, like, oh, that you're not who I thought you were. Right. Yeah. So. Well, that's interesting. Trippy. Up to your patron, Lindy from Indiana says, in treating clients that have the same issues you're dealing with in your own life. Yeah. Do you ever find yourself realizing that you might be in the wrong about something? Does this help with gaining perspective? Bob, what do you think? Yes. It's one of the best things about being a therapist. My old David Taylor. Apparently, it's David Taylor. He used to say to me, I said, David, maybe I'm a half step ahead of, maybe I'm two steps behind this client. And he's like, I know, Bob. That's what's great about being in private practice is this is what's going to happen to you. And I'm like... Two steps behind, meaning that you're helping a client with an issue and they're further down the road of, of recovery than you are. Their development is beyond my own. Yeah. 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 And, and that would, you know, make me anxious, nervous, but that guy was fearless. He'd just take anything on and just learn about it. Right. And so, um, yeah, he said, yeah. So, um, yes, it's really cool. I had a student in my class once and we had a discussion about, should you give homeless people money? And I, I, I was stating my very certain, a little bit aggressively certain opinion that you should not do that, right? And she said, well, you know, what if they need money, right? You're walking down the street, you see somebody and they need help. It's obvious they need help. They're asking for help. And you give them some money. I'm like, well, they're just going to use it for drugs. And she said, well, so what? What if they do use it for drugs? Then what? You know, what? Maybe you're helping them hit bottom. Who knows? Maybe, you know. And I... I really listened to that and I flipped my attitude about um, giving money to people that are homeless. Now I just do it without any compunction at all. And I don't know where that money's going to go. And I don't think that matters. And I'm often very grateful to that client for teaching me. I, and I, I, you know what I ought to do is I ought to just send her an email and tell her I'm grateful to her. <laughs> She's lovely young woman. And yeah, uh, very frequently I am in session as a therapist and about, you know, halfway through an intervention or some kind of action I'm doing with a client, I'm thinking, Oh, this applies to me. (laughs) Yeah. And it, it always is liberating. Yeah. Or I can't think of a time where it's not where I feel liberated, you know, and that's the word. I think that's the best word for it is, when like I'll be talking with a client and, and they will be perhaps exhibiting behavior that I observe in someone that hurt me. You know, someone hurts me, hurts my feelings. I'm angry or brooding or something. And then I'm with a client and they're doing something that's similar to the 
person that hurt me. And I, as a therapist, have an inner perspective and have compassion. That's my mode. And I'm not hurt by the client. So I can, I'm free to think more differentiatedly. And so Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, oh, and I'm talking to them. I'm like, well, you know, you did that and that's not okay, but we understand where that comes from and da da da. Right. And then it'll hit me, oh, that's probably what that person did to me. And or that's what I'm doing to other people or something. True. And it's liberating because in that moment I'm I, I see the matrix for what it is, which is that ninety nine percent of the time we're hurt secretly, reasonably, and reacting reasonably and misunderstanding each other so frequently, you know, it's, 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 it's such a common scenario. Then I will either kind of recover from whatever is going on in my personal life or I'll resolve to take action as soon as the session is over, (laughs) you know, like reach out to that person or apologize or, or something. Yeah. So happens to me all the time too. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the great things about this kind of career. Yeah, and and by, just as a as a similar scenario, I've had clients not frequently but occasionally that will exhibit behavior that or have a personality trait of someone in my past that right. that might have really hurt me. Yeah. And as I'm treating them, I'm realizing, "Oh, you're like so-and-so. Right. And I have this really interesting inside view, perhaps of this person from my past uh-huh. who's, you know, you're doing what they did. Right. And, but you're coming to me for help. Right. I'm not the enemy. Yep. And so now, of course I'm prone to counter transference against this client because of sure. maybe my feelings of the past, but right. But it's a, and that's happened a number of times too, where I've, I've had what I think to be the opportunity to really, you know, just imagine all y'all out there listening, think about that person from your past. Maybe it's a family member, maybe it's an ex partner who really just hurt you and you are at least somewhat, if not very confused and boggled by who they were and what they did and why and and why did things happen that way? And you just never resolve that because you just never get the opportunity to really unpack that with your, with your former partner or your family member or your boss or whatever it was. And then someone comes into your office who seems to be a close uh, facsimile of that person, at least in this personality trait or behavior. And now your job is to figure out, why they are the way that they are, you know, and, and, and you get this opportunity to go, Oh, Mm -hmm. uh, and every time that this has happened to me, I have learned Mm -hmm. or confirmed that all this stuff comes from pain, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, infidelity, abuse, um, inconsider lack of consideration of your feelings. It all comes from pain. You know, people are in pain and they're suffering and then they will cheat or they will 
hurt your feelings or they will say something that was hurtful or literally abuse you. And it doesn't justify it, but it, it, it's brought me, you know, and, and so, cause sometimes people will ask me, they'll say like, I don't understand why you believe that humans are good, you know, cause in my experience, not everyone is good. And, and the average person doesn't really operate from altruism, you know? Well, yeah. What? Well, I don't know if the average person doesn't operate from altruism. That's a fun, that's a, that's a peculiar, that's a, that's a, that word is, oh, I got lots of thoughts about that word. Sorry. I think I'm, <laughs> you have no words about that, I, I, about, about how many words you have about that word. That's, that's true. You that's have a true. lot of words. I think my brain just went on a tangent. I interrupted. Sorry. Well, tell me. I can't remember what it was. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, altruism. I don't believe in it. I think we always have some self-interest. Oh. Yeah. Well, it's a, you know, a belief system. And some people will blanch at how I believe that humans are good and that oh, yeah. I see the good in people. Yeah. And, you know, it's fine. It's just a belief. But yeah. the part of that might be because imagine everyone who has hurt you in your past eventually comes into your office as a client. Right. You work long enough, that's what's going to happen. Right. Then now you you are the compassionate healing presence in all those hurtful people in your past. Mm -hmm. You know, they come into your office begging for help mm -hmm. and you're there to help them. Uh, imagine that, right? Yeah. <laughs> or everyone that you just imagine to be a bad person, you know, a, someone who sexually abuses someone, you know, it's, say you weren't sexually abused, but you know it of, of its existence. And then someone comes into your office who's like that, or a racist person or a, you know, privileged person of some way. And, yeah. and you are now their all loving mother, essentially <laughs> as their therapist. And I think that, changes your view yep. uh, to a more accepting, loving, um, I don't know, maybe even optimistic or yeah. point of view about human beings. Yeah, I should hope. Yeah. You know, uh, the, uh, as an example of that, I had a client who actually was a therapist who was a hothead in public, and he would... You know, in today's parlance, they'd call him a male Karen, which I find to be a, just a ridiculous uh, phrase. But <laughs> they, uh, he in public would yell at people for various reasons. You know, like um, if someone was playing loud music at the beach or something, you know, he he would go over there and and he wouldn't be nice about it. You know, he, uh -huh. it would it would really build up inside of him. So he's one of those people that would just walk up to people in public and just in a very not nice way uh -huh. say da 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 yeah and that was a big part of what we were working on yeah and i learned you know oh cuz i've experienced people like that and i've seen people like that and mm -hmm. thought what is wrong with you right mm -hmm. but then i had a chance to learn what mm -hmm. was wrong with one of them and he was not a happy person you know mm -hmm. it wasn't mm -hmm. he didn't go home and say uh -huh, I really got them. You know, yeah. it was, there was a lot of pain yeah, and shame and compulsive 
attachments to things, uh-huh. just like ruminating, I uh-huh. guess is the best word. That neighbor who will bother you about this and that. Uh-huh. Uh, for you, it's just this occasional thing that's bothering you. But to the neighbor, they can't sleep at night because of that thing that's yeah. happening on the border between your house and their house. Right. Like it's it's plaguing them. Yeah. And by the time they, you know, their their plague overcomes their restraint, they are blowing up. You know, they're a bursting volcano, and you and then they come at you, right? But they're seething about this. It's not a pleasant experience, right? But it's always framed as like, you know, look at this entitled person, DDD. And it's like, you know, it's probably a part of it. But there's a lot of really suffering human beings with a lot of ongoing distress and pain and anxiety. And then occasionally it gets their bad mood gets directed at you. And it it's not, doesn't justify it. It's it's wrong. But whenever you see someone like that, just know at least a, a part of your conceptualization is like that person is suffering. They are suffering. Like they are. It's not just today. Yeah. You know, it is. It is an ongoing thing for this person in all likelihood. You know. Anyway, let's take a break. What do you say, Bob? Let's take a break. All right, we're back from the break. Anonymous, up to your patron from Arizona, says, How do I process a painful ending of a therapeutic relationship with my therapist? Uh, actually, we have a couple emails about this. Hmm. Today, my EMDR therapist of three years told me that he is no longer accepting insurance after the first of this year, of the, this upcoming year. Mm-hmm. My cost for sessions will go from $10 to $150. Mm-hmm. I will not be able to afford that and continue seeing him. Words can't explain how heartbroken I am. We had a really incredible therapeutic relationship, and I know I will never find it again with someone else. It never occurred to me that this relationship could one day hurt me. I feel so many things that I'm ashamed of, like betrayal, rejection, worthlessness, self-loathing, because I'm relying on my therapist too much. How do I how do I get all of this out of my system in session? A part of me thinks I should just have one or two more sessions to say goodbye and cancel the rest of my appointments to spare myself. Is that valid? Is it possible that this separation may be for the best, as it certainly feels like my attachment I've had all along has reached unhealthy levels? Bob, what do you think? I think you should read this email to your therapist when you see him next. And I I would caution you about precipitously dropping out of therapy. I don't. You're not saying anything that says to me that you have any kind of um, weird attachment stuff. Actually, what it sounds like is you and your therapist have done really good work together. And as a result of your good efforts with one another, you've developed a connection and closeness and you have an opportunity to work with what it's like to say goodbye to somebody who's important to you. Um, it's unfortunate that this is the case. It's also, you know, therapists have limits. And so this is that person's, you know, that one of their limits is around this shift and, it's there's no getting out of grief so don't get out of it right exactly the main thing you're experiencing is grief and it might take a lifetime and you could do that with another therapist you're saying that you're not going to be able to find as good of a therapist and i would say that there's a pretty good chance you will find 
a another therapist that you can bond with as much a good match it just might take a few you might have to go through five to ten therapists before you find another good match like that but i would highly encourage you look for that regarding canceling the rest of your appointments i agree with bob that uh that seems not like the best given what you're saying i understand the impulse and i and i've had clients do this to me where they are very hurt and distressed about an upcoming change and they it becomes overwhelming to them and, and then they they skip out and and you know it's fine if that's what they want to do but if you want to really optimize your transition and your grief then spending as much time with him and talking about all this stuff as much time as you have would would really be helpful i i would imagine but yeah it's not unhealthy to be attached that's the point and uh that voice of that it's inside of you that's shaming you for being attached to this therapist and being hurt by you know the ending of the relationship is is an internalization of someone else you know someone else in your past told you that you were ridiculous or wrong or clingy or some, or needy or too dependent or something and that voice is shaming you right now and that that voice needs to be put in its place because it is it's abusive to you it's ridiculous humans are dependent you you got attached to a therapist that's good that that means you worked hard to and opened up and trusted him and he proved himself to be a trustworthy person you did everything you're supposed to do because that's how you healed it was three years of healing instead of 30 years which is what you were hoping for which i get but that was three years of healing and that that's great and it hurts and that's just you know that's life (laughs) and it's a sucky part of life but it's a part of life and you're experiencing it and no pain no gain and no you know if you're going to risk love and connection then you're inviting grief into your life like having uh this is what it's like when i get a new dog or a cat it's like i i've had so many dogs and cats die in my lifetime that when i get a new dog i'm like when is this dog gonna die and i'm gonna be crying you know it's it's just a matter of time. I'm probably going to outlive, you know, even as a puppy, I'm thinking, well, this dog will live 10, 15 years. But all I can think about is, well, not all, but, you know, occasionally all I can think about is it. this is going to be painful. Does that mean I don't get another dog? No. It means that life sucks. <laughs> but life is wonderful. Life is wonderful and and life has connection and love and there's a yin and a yang and the pain will come and you invited dependency and closeness into your life. And here comes the pain, which is it, 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 it's just a part of the thing. And what a wonderful opportunity to experience the pain of losing someone. It's much better than being alone. It's much better than avoiding the whole thing. Rudy from Rhode Island says, I've been working with my therapist for over a year now. I'm really connected with her, and we've been able to do a lot of great work together. She recently dropped a bomb on me saying that she will be leaving the insurance panels and that I will have to start paying full price for sessions. 
The only reason I've been able to see her as long as I have is because my insurance covers a huge portion of my sessions. I may not be able to continue seeing her since I won't be able to afford the full price of the sessions. I feel somewhat abandoned by her. What would be the reason for a therapist to leave the insurance panel so that I can understand her choice a little better? Bob, what do you think? The insurance company doesn't pay them what they want to make. Right. That's the reason. Yeah. I For both these folks, you know, probably you already thought about it, but it's reasonable to check into what your out-of-network benefit is and what your deductible looks like and what the percentage of um, coverage you can get. Um, just ask your therapist what billing code they use because the insurance companies are pretty squirrely about that and don't want to... They, want, they don't want to tell you the reimbursement rate for individual therapy. You actually have to tell them the billing code, but they won't tell you what the billing code is. So get your therapist to tell you what the billing code is that they're using and then ask the insurance company what's the out-of-network reimbursement rate for this and you can get a good sense of how much out-of-pocket you're looking at. Some some insurances are actually um, uh, will give you quite a bit back. Most I'm not on any insurance panels. I got a divorce from all of them for this same reason. And I still get the evidence of benefits letters from the insurance companies when my clients submit for reimbursement. And some of them get a nice chunk of dough back. How long ago did you divorce from insurance panels? I did it gradually over about a three-year period, but probably I got my last divorce probably about 10 years ago. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, for me, I, in the beginning of my career, welcomed insurance paneling because... I needed the clients and, uh, you know, people who are coming. So if you don't, people outside the States might not understand what we're talking about. But the way that it works is that in the United States is that everyone has different insurance. (laughs) Like in the city of Seattle, you'll have, I don't know, 25 different insurance companies that are insuring health, the health insurance for people. There's probably five to 10 major players, but the client will come to us and say, I would like to see you. And let's say I charge $150 per session, but, uh, but it, I, especially in the beginning of my career, clients would only one, they'd be like, I can't afford $150 an hour. Or they would say, um, I could only afford three sessions like once a month or something. And it's like, that's, you know, that kind of sucks for everybody. It yeah. sucks for the client. It sucks for us. Whereas if you're on an insurance panel, it they will contract with you to lower your price. And so uh, they have a, a ceiling to how much you can charge if you're going to. So the insurance company comes to me and says, we will give you clients and we will pay for 90% of the fee for the clients. Therefore you will have more long-term clients and you'll be able to, and we will just, you know, clients will come to you specifically because you're on the panel because there will only be a copay instead of the benefit that uh, we're going to give our patients and ourselves, you know, we're the insurance company is saying, we're giving you this thing therapist. And the therapist says, you know, and I will lower my prices for you. You know, that's the contract. And so now some insurance companies will have you lower the fee. The ceiling will be like a hundred or 120, which is a pretty big discount from 150. Right. But some insurance companies will discount it all the way down to like $40 or $50. Some of them are really hard to work with. Yeah. And so you could be a therapist and one client you're charging 150 and the next one 
is only being charged $50 because the insurance panel, uh, the contract dictates that. Now, the therapist at any time can pull out of that contract. But in the beginning of my career, I had enough openings in my schedule that I took the insurance cut, like Cigna, for example, would pay, you know, 50 bucks or something. And I was fine with that because it was a lot more money than I was getting paid at an agency, which was, you know, $12 an hour or something. And so overall it, it worked out. I had some paying, I think my fee back then was 120 and then some insurances were paying like 110 and some insurance was paying 50 and, you know, it all kind of yeah. averaged out. And, and to some extent I thought, well, you know, I shouldn't, exclude people with Cigna just because their insurance is bad. You know, those people need help too. I kind of felt it that way. And then I'd have some clients that I would charge on a slight fee scale because they didn't have insurance or their insurance didn't cover mental health coverage or, you know, so there's this wide, as a private practitioner, you'll have this wide variety of, of prices that just depends. And, and, and then it's a pain in the butt as a therapist because you have to learn every different insurance company's way of, of sending in claims. I'm guessing it's easier now with online portals, but back in the day you would actually type out a claim for every session sometimes. And, and you get paid months later. Uh, and you, there'd always be, you know, there'd frequently be this kind of red tape you'd have to go through. And, and so, um, when you get to a point in your career as a private therapist, private practice therapist, where you have enough clients who will pay full price or will utilize their out of network benefit to bring your price down a little bit, then financially it may, and just logistically it makes sense because you don't have to deal with the paperwork anymore to divorce from the insurance panels of just saying, I'm no longer going to contract with different insurance companies. And so a lot of therapists, and I see it more and more even in novice therapists these days because there's so much client, there's so many clients begging for therapists that people right out of the gate are like, you know, I don't think I'll ever panel. I don't think I'll ever contract with insurance companies. Um, you know, I'll allow for out-of-network benefits, sure. um, like you said. So Rudy from Rhode Island, and for that matter, um anonymous up at your patron from Arizona. Um, it's, you know, that's why therapists will drop insurance because they can make a lot more money and it's a lot less work. You know, imagine a client showing up in your office and they just Venmo you or write a check or you just charge their credit card for that session as opposed to filling out a bunch of paperwork and mailing it in or going on a, on a really janky online form that you have to fill out that take that, you know, some of these forms could take like 15 minutes to fill out just for one session. You know, it, it it's a pain in the butt. <laughs> this one, um, you know, regents, it's the blue shield in mm -hmm. Washington, mm -hmm. their portal was, can't remember what it was called, but they made me, change my password every month every month they made me make a new password every month google doesn't ask me to do that facebook doesn't ask me to do that but 
you know, my own insurance company that I have for my own health insurance doesn't make me do that. But somehow this, this Availty, I think it was called, Availty was the website. And <laughs> you know how much of a, because like, oh, yeah. to every month. Yeah. So, and this went on for years. Yeah. So how do I come, how do I, one, how do I come up with a new password? And two, where do I write it down? Like, how am I supposed to remember this? Because eventually I run out of my own passwords, you know, because I have like five or ten passwords that I just know that I use occasionally. But then, and of course, you know, what people listening right now, well, you got to use like a password generator and stuff. And it's like, Those were not available back then. Right. And I'm old and I don't want to do that. So don't don't make me. Um, yeah, actually, security is diminished by that kind of... I know. Frequent finagling. Yeah. Ugh. Anyway, but I totally get that it hurts yes. when your therapist tells you something that means you're no longer going to be able to see them anymore. You're not going right. to be able to afford them for one reason. You know, another thing that can happen is your therapist could just raise their rates because that happens. You know, a therapist can go from 120 to 150 or 150 to 200 or something. And you might be like, that. I, I just can't. In fact, that happened to me when I was a client. My therapist was giving me a deal. I can't remember exact numbers, but I think it was like, you know, and I'm a graduate student who is slipping further and further into debt. Oh, yeah. And I didn't have I didn't have insurance to pay for mental. I had insurance, but I didn't have insurance that would pay for mental health. Uh, that was back in the day when that was optional. Right. Yeah. And I... I think he was charging me at $75 a session or something like that. And so mm-hmm. I was seeing him four times, you know, four times every week. Yeah. So that works out, you know, to be at 300 bucks a month, which right. was not a little amount oh, of money, you know, it. when yeah. my rent was like $900 a month or, right. or something like $700 a month for yeah. rent or something. It's just like, that's a huge Big amount money. of money, you know, yeah. for a 23 year old struggling, you know, human. Right. And, uh, he wrote, he raised his rates to, uh, or he, he came to me and he said, if, if you want me to, I can't remember what it was, but somehow it was going to become more expensive. Sure. And, and I came to him and I said, I was already strapped. Like I, I can't swing that. Sure. You know, I can't do that. Is there something else that we can do? You know, and I understood where he was coming from, yeah, but, sure. I, but I was, you know, it was distressing for me. Right. And. I think he was, you know, he was fairly cold about it. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. But he was kind of a cold therapist to begin with, which is kind of nice on a certain level because he didn't pull any punches with me, which I think I needed at the time. Uh-huh. But I do remember feeling, oh, this is, this is, okay. So all that's fine. In my looking back, I'm like, hey, he raised his rates. He was matter of fact about it. Yeah. And, you know he was giving me a deal anyway and he just didn't want to do that anymore. His practice was getting better and da da da. Okay, fine. And I was pushing back or asking him to relent. And, and then he used, he said he used something from my life to say, you're resisting this change because of da da da, you know, you're resisting this change in, my fee, you're pushing back because of your issue with so-and-so. I'm thinking it's really tricky because where's the transference? Where's the counter-transference? This, is, this should be all these kinds of 
hypotheses should be stated as such. They, they are hypotheses for a client to think about and consider. But if you state something like a fact, you invite somebody just to say no. It's like being, it's like telling someone how they feel. Oh, you're angry right now. If they're not angry right now, or even if they are, being told that that's how they feel will usually invite um, um, reject, uh, uh, they'll say no. Debate. Debate, yeah. But also, I felt like he was using what he knew about me yeah. to get more money out Well, of that's me. a counter-transferential response. Yeah. And, and I'm like, you know, it'd be one thing if he said, well, you know, I, yeah, I'm sorry, but that's just the way right. it is. Hey, what's this like for you? Yeah. Is it, I wonder if it rings like this other thing. But but he got desperate uh, and like you know yeah. dug through my my dirty laundry. That's leverage and pulled something out yeah, and that's, said that's sloppy. And I'm like, and I remember being so hurt by that, right? And it really destroyed my trust in him. And I think sure. I terminated like soon after that. I, I I look back and I still appreciate what he did. He was he was a very formative, you know, of the therapist I've worked with. He was right. a very I still think I mean, that was 25 years ago. I I think about things, sessions that I've had with him. Right. And um I'm no I'm not anything like him as a therapist. Well, maybe I am a little bit. But anyway, um but at the same time like the way it terminated, I felt um but in the vein of what we often talk about, Bob, is I didn't give it a chance. I didn't go to him and say I mean, I think maybe I did a little bit, but you know, maybe that would have been good for my own growth would be to really go to him and say, look, that really hurt me. And I'm really angry at you. Yeah. I didn't do that. I just terminated. Mm. <laughs> but it was kind to... of, it was, I was kind of ready to take a break anyway, sure. I think at that point. But anyway, I think it's, it's, I, I often say to people, Oh, that's worthy of talking to your therapist about, but I, I don't hope I don't indicate that. I think it's easy to do it. It isn't right. Yeah. Up at your patron, Michelle from North Hills says, Hi, Kirk and Bob. Is it normal? Is it a normal phenomenon to have moments of WTF suddenly when you remember your partner or close friend is just a random person you become extremely close to? When I have these moments, sometimes it feels similar to derealization. Hmm. End of email. Do you know what Michelle is talking about? Yeah, I think it happens to me all the time. Can you describe what that feels like? It's like this sort of recognition that the cosmic tumblers of the universe have clicked into place and things have unfolded in such a way that in this case, let's say you, you're in my life. Like what path you're from Issaquah. I'm from Philadelphia, right? I got here almost on a whim, not quite, but almost on a whim. Yeah. And then went to, I mean, I think about you and me, I think I went to grad school that fall. I had thought about grad school before and I, and I thought about, leaving the state actually to go to graduate school and tried to do that and didn't. And at first was crushed by that and well crushed. That's a bit strong, but disappointed. And then I ended up at school with you and you and me, we've been friends like this yeah. since. And I, sometimes I'll be like, wow. Yeah. That's a hell of a thing right there. Yeah. The, the other thing is, it's like, well, you know, your life is going to be peopled by somebody because you have experiences out there in the world and some people you're drawn to and some people you're not. And so you become friends with this person or, or, or that person, but not that or the other. And so somebody was going to be my best friend. Yeah. But, but it was you. So, yeah. I, and that's, I can relate to that. Yeah. You know, on some level it's like, well, yeah, of course. But then when you really think about yeah. it, 
in the same way that when I think about how the universe is infinite. Yeah. And there's nothing outside the universe, you know? Yeah. Like, because my tiny uh-huh. animal brain can't conceive of something that's truly infinite yeah. that doesn't have an outside to it. And when the big bang happened, you know, it's this, everything comes down to this in, in, infinitely small point, all the matter in the universe and energy. That's trippy. But what's outside of the big bang? You know, what does the big bang go into? Well, it doesn't go in anything because time and space is what it is you know like it it is time it is space you know it all of space all of the geometry of the universe was in a small point there was nothing inside or outside of that thing anyway i'm like uh, you know it just doesn't equate and and sometimes i have a similar feeling not as frequent about you know the cosmic tumblers as you say that align for for example you and i to me for me and my wife to have met, actually, right. it, that that's it, sometimes you think about that stuff, you're just like, whoa. Um, but I think what Michelle is also talking about is this feeling of this person isn't really connected to me. Yeah, I don't know how to put this into oh, words, but I get that. Well, to describe that, well, Colleen isn't connected to me. I mean, Colleen's my family. Yeah, but then like, who's Colleen? Like. Right. We're not, we, we we didn't grow up together. We don't have history like that together. And yet she's the closest person I got to me. And who, it's it's like, there's not a connection. Right. It's sort of like when sometimes I'll be, I'll just catch my eyes in, a, in the mirror. I very rarely look at myself in the mirror. Not oh. because I'm not vain, but because <laughs> I just don't care. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> You know, and my wife, she'll say stuff to me. She'll be like, you have a thing on your face. And I'll be like, oh, really? But I've become much more conscious since I started making YouTube videos, you know, Uh because if I have like a bug on my nose or something, uh, it's like I should probably pay attention to this. And I don't know if you've noticed, but my hair has become much more consistent over time. I don't know if you've noticed that. Did you say insistent? Consistent. But occasionally I'll look at myself in the mirror, Mm -hmm. in the eyes, and Mm -hmm. and it feels weird. I'm like... Who is that? Who person? is that? Who am I? Right. I think a similar thing can happen yeah. when we look at our partner or right. we think about our partner yeah. and we're thinking they're just a random person. You know, I feel I want to and I feel like we're connected. Right. That they they think of me, they know me. Yeah. I guess maybe that's another way to put it. They know me, I know them. But then sometimes it's like do I know them? <laughs> do they know me? Yeah. How do I know that? Uh-huh. I, I don't. There's actually, if I think about it, there's a chance that I don't know them. Yeah, and they don't know me. I only see what I what I want to see, or oh. they only see what they want to see, or and so the matrix. It feels like what Michelle yeah. is saying is almost like dissociation, yeah. like derealization, like I'm suddenly becoming untethered right. from the world and people. Do you ever do that with your own history? Like, I think back when I was 11 or 12, where what was my world? My world was, I had a red bike. I lived on that bike. It had a broken pedal. And on my right shoe, I would constantly, had a little nub, and I would constantly try to pedal with one pedal, and then this little nub on the right side, and my foot would slip off, and I have a scar on the inside of my ankle oh. from constant, the same 
bit of me just getting cut right over and over again. And that was my world. That bike was my world. I played basketball with my friends. And like, that was my world was like, I go up to school I play basketball and I ride my bike everywhere and I have a cut on my ankle and, and a hole in my shoe. Right. Um, um, in the same place. And that went on for years. And when I think about what I pay attention to now, like iPads, right? Like, oh, remember pens, <laughs> right? And, so you're saying like it, it feels like a different person. It's like a different guy. Yeah. yeah. A different person. Right. This, that, and you know, and I, it was like, you know, on a molecular level. Yeah. You, oh, right. Every seven years you change your cells. All right. your molecules change. Yeah. 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 It, yeah. Yeah. And so I know there's a string of continuity from then to now. That's 43 years ago. Um, but um, it doesn't feel, in some ways, it doesn't feel like that was my world. You know, my dad's wingtip shoes and the front porch with the with the bricks on the edge and the concrete in the middle and the uh, lamppost that kept rotting out and falling over and the garage door that was hung crooked, which is now not even a garage anymore. My mother still lives there. And yeah, the feeling that I get as you're talking and I think about my childhood uh-huh. is that it's like a different, it's like a movie that didn't happen. Yeah. One like, you know really well though. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe this happens as you get older. I think particularly. Yeah. All right, Bob. Well, that does it for that episode of psychology in Seattle. Everyone out there, please take care of yourself. Because you deserve it.